The second reading is from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 16. Acts chapter, 40, Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. Okay, well, if you do have your Bibles with you there at home, please keep them open to that second passage in Acts chapter 4 and 5, and we're going to spend some time looking at that together now. But let's, let's begin with prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us this part of your word to hear what you have to say, and we pray that this morning we will. We will hear and take to heart uh, this message that you have for us, that you will transform us into the people who are uh, ready and willing to live as followers of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. A while ago, I was joking around with a few friends of mine, and we were talking about the idea that there would be a problem with theft in heaven. Imagine it, right? You come home from another day of rejoicing in the goodness of the glory of God. You've been doing it for about a thousand years, and every day has been the best day of your very long life. You're constantly in awe of God's goodness, and the people that you're with are amazing. It's like the best party you could have possibly imagined. You couldn't have dreamed of a better experience every day of your life. But this particular day, you come home and you find a notice has been pinned to your front door. It says, attention all residents of heaven. There have been a series of robberies in your neighbourhood. Please ensure that you lock your doors and secure all possessions. Report any incidents to your nearest angelic office. Sincerely, the Archangel Gabriel. It is both laughable and unimaginable, right? That's not what heaven is supposed to be like. I mean, how could it be? Part of the goodness of heaven is not just the beautiful location, but a perfect people and perfect relationships between people and God and people with each other. And that's why God can't just put us back in the Garden of Eden. The, the corruption and selfishness of humanity will ruin the goodness of any location. But heaven, that will be different, because God will make us people who so love each other and God that it will make paradise a real paradise. And so it's laughable, but also a bit unsettling to think that you might need a warning sign in heaven. You know, those ones, watch out, thieves about. It undermines the very essence of what heaven is meant to be. And, and that idea kind of begins to raise for us the issue that is driving the action in this part of Acts that we've just read. Greed and corruption in the church amongst God's people. If you were here last week, you might remember that last week we heard about attacks against the church, attacks that came from the authorities, from the rulers, from the government. They were making threats against the apostles. That was an attack from, from the outside. This week, the opposition and attacks continue, but this time it's more subtle and it's internal. It's an attack from within the church. And we're told very explicitly in verse 3 that this attack is Satan attacking God's church. Peter says to Ananias in verse 3, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? This is a cosmic battle between God and Satan. Jesus is building his church and Satan is trying to tear it down. But this attack is not that kind of full frontal obvious attack that we heard last week. As Satan often does, he uses subtlety and lies. His weapon of mass destruction is deceit 
and hypocrisy in the church. And so this time, the opposition comes from seemingly pious and godly people, the actions of two members of the church, Ananias and Sapphira. And as we look at this now, there are two points that I really want to make for us this morning. The first is that God cares deeply about the holiness of his church. And the second is that we cannot fool God about the state of our hearts. So let's have a look at this first one. God cares deeply about the holiness of his church. Because, you know, we, we won't understand these, frankly, quite unsettling events unless we appreciate this fact. God cares deeply about the holiness of his church. But I think that once we do appreciate this, it will actually cause us to thank God that he does care, but also to heed the warning that this passage gives us. So before we get to the attack in chapter 5 that I just mentioned, notice that the last paragraph of chapter 4 that Mickey started with paints a pretty amazing picture of the community of God's people, right? I mean, they're all one in heart and mind, it says, and that leads to caring people caring for each other so that some of them even sold their land and their houses so that they could provide for the needs of others. And so it says in verse 34, there were no needy people among them. Now, this wasn't some early form of communism. It wasn't a compulsory pooling of assets. It was people who had such a care for each other and who held so lightly to their own possessions that they freely gave them up to care for the needs of others. What a beautiful picture of God's people loving each other the way that God wants them to. But as we discover in chapter 5, this beautiful picture is under threat. And it's a threat that both mimics and corrupts the unity and love of this community. And that's highlighted for us, I think, in the contrast between Ananias and Sapphira, who we see in chapter 5, and Barnabas, who is mentioned just before them. Because what Ananias and Sapphira did was almost exactly the same as what Barnabas did. Let me read from the end of chapter 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And when we get to that point, we think these two look quite similar, right? They both sold their properties in order to give money for the distribution to the needy. I mean, what a, what a good thing to do. But it turns out they could not have been more different. Barnabas was motivated by his love and care for the other believers so that he freely gave what was his to care for the needs of others. But Ananias and Sapphira were motivated by pride, trying to mimic Barnabas's generosity in order to get praise and approval from others. They wanted credit for sacrificial generosity, but it was a fake. It was a fraud. And in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about the nature of their sin under the next point. But 
First, we need to see what a threat this is to this new community that God has created. This is Satan trying to infiltrate and destroy it, and God will not allow it. He will not allow this corruption to go unchecked, any more than he would allow Adam and Eve to stay in the Garden of Eden after Satan had convinced them to rebel against God's rule. The Paradise of Eden was no place for a corrupted humanity. I mean, imagine if humanity was allowed to stay in the Garden of Eden and that corruption was allowed to continue after they'd rebelled against God. The jealousy, the rage, the murder, Cain killing Abel and and everything that happened after that, that doesn't fit in God's paradise, does it? It would hardly be paradise. And I think we kind of instinctively get that when it comes to the Garden of Eden or heaven, like that kind of comical scene that I mentioned at the beginning. It's inconceivable, right, that we'd have to worry about theft in heaven or slander or lying or murder. What kind of heaven would that be? It wouldn't be heaven at all. It'd be, well, exactly where we are now. It's a chilling thought, isn't it? You cannot have the goodness of God's blessing alongside selfishness and sin. Do we really want God to have a low bar when it comes to sin and holiness? And this concern for sin and, sorry, for holiness, the holiness of his people, is what led God to act so decisively against Ananias and Sapphira. Because God's grace and forgiveness is not the same, not the same thing as God having a low bar. There is no place for deceit, and greed in heaven and so there is no place for it amongst God's people now now of course this is going to raise for us the issue of my sin and yours and I'll come to that in a moment but before we do I want us to appreciate the fact that this is a good thing that you can't have the goodness of verse 32 all the believers were one in heart and mind you can't have that without God's standard for holiness among his people. The heaven that we are looking forward to is the perfection of that picture. And in the book of 2 Peter, it describes God's new creation, heaven on earth, as being the home of righteousness. Love and kindness are in its very essence, in its bones, you could say. And God will make you a person who is fit for that place. He will give us new hearts so that we won't be the kind of people who would spoil the goodness of that blessing anymore. And what a glorious thing to look forward to. So if that's who we will be then, if that's what we will be like then, the consistent message of the Bible is, then that's who we should want to be now. And the first few verses of this passage give us a glimpse of just how good that can be. God's concern for holiness amongst his people is a good thing. But we also need to hear the warning that goes with this. God will guard and protect the holiness of his church. Now, this is not saying that church is full of perfect people and if you're not perfect, then you don't belong. It's not saying that. 
Nor is it saying that God will do this every time there is this kind of sin and hypocrisy in the church. He clearly doesn't. What it is saying, what he is doing, is warning us to make sure that we don't go the same way that Ananias and Sapphira did. Because warnings are one of the ways that God guards and protects his church, guards his people. Warnings against spiritual hypocrisy and deceit, against lack of love, against ungodliness and immorality, against false teaching. And one of the marks of true believers is not that we are perfect, but that we heed God's warnings. Trusting God means that we hear his words of warning and take them to heart. We take them seriously, not saying, well, I might as well give up, it's impossible. But at the same time, neither saying, well, I don't have to worry about that, I'm okay. The mark of true believers is that we take God's warnings to heart. And so we need to be very clear. We can't come away from this thinking, my sin doesn't matter, or that sin in the church doesn't matter. God cares deeply about the holiness of his people. That's why he sent Jesus. God is all about grace and forgiveness, but that is not the same thing as God not caring about sin. In fact, just the opposite. In Romans chapter 2, it says, Don't you realize that the riches of God's kindness is meant to lead you towards repentance? See, God's grace and kindness is not meant to make us complacent with our sin. It's meant to help me examine my life with confidence so that I can turn to God in repentance and throw myself on the mercy of Jesus who loves me and gave himself for me. That's our first point. My second point is that we can't fool God about the state of our heart. Because that's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira tried to do, right? And Peter makes it very clear that the problem here, the problem that they had, was not fundamentally about money, although it is related. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. Ananias and Sapphira thought they could, but they couldn't. Money can easily become a spiritual barrier that can lead us away from God. But the real problem here is not about the money. So Peter doesn't say, you know, hey, Ananias, Barnabas gave all of the money and you only gave part of it. You know, what gives? Where's the rest of it? Peter is very clear. Ananias could have given all of it or part of it or none of it. That wasn't the issue. The problem was his spiritual hypocrisy and deceit that he tried to deceive God for the sake of impressing people. Let me read again from from verse 3 and and verse 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. So you might be able to lie to people and get away with it sometimes. I'm not recommending it, but you might be able to. 
But in the end, it doesn't matter if I think you're great. It doesn't matter if other people think you're awesome. It doesn't matter what your reputation among the church is like. God is the one who knows your heart. And that's what matters. And one of the things that's really struck me from this passage is that Peter had to tell Ananias that he was lying to God. It's like it hadn't even occurred to him. I mean, Ananias knew perfectly well that he was lying to people and so did his wife Sapphira. In verse 8, she explicitly says, yes, that is the full amount that we got for selling the land when it wasn't. This is a deliberate deception. But they seem completely unaware of the fact that they're actually trying to fool God. In their desire to impress people with their spirituality, they'd forgotten about the one person who actually matters, the one person who actually knows their heart. It's a tragic irony, isn't it? You get a good reputation at church by ignoring God. And Jesus, you might know, uh, um, reserves some of his most pointed criticism for spiritual hypocrisy and doing things to impress other people. And for good reason. I mean, how stupid is it to live a religious life that cuts God out of the picture? You're trying to impress people with my godliness, but forgetting about God himself. It's like when you get dressed up in your exercise gear and go to the shops to make it look like you're on your way to the gym. A while ago, there was a joke going around online about exactly that, where people would get dressed up, have, you know, have people get dressed up in their active wear, but don't do anything active, never actually work out. You know, get all dressed up in the tights and the singlet and the, and the running shoes, and then go to the cafe for a coffee or go to pick up the kids from school or go to the shops, but never actually break a sweat. You know, it's kind of funny when it comes to active wear, but it's tragic when it, that false impression is trying to fool God. We cannot fool God about the state of our hearts. And sadly, I've seen this sort of thing play out over time. The most seemingly pious and godly people, you later discover that their personal life and their hearts are far from God. And sadly, you often discover it when something goes horribly wrong. This is such a significant and fundamental issue and one that all of us, I think, need to really take to heart. See, I don't think we're meant to see this in kind of black and white terms, that either I'm a complete hypocrite without a spiritually honest bone in my body or I'm a genuine believer and so I can completely ignore this warning. Again, the mark of true believers is that we hear God's warnings and take them to heart. And so that's what we need to do. I'm sure that none of us want to be the hypocrite, right? We don't want to be someone who does things for the praise of other people. So how can we make sure that we're not? Well, I just want to make one suggestion. Now, it might sound simplistic. I hope that it doesn't. My suggestion is prayer, particularly private prayer. So you want to be someone who is honest with God? Then talk to God about it. Private prayer, I think, helps us to foster our consciousness of God, that God is there and he is listening. 
See, it's harder to be hypocritical about your godliness if you're talking to God about it. It's harder to fool yourself that you can get away with deceiving God if you know that God is listening. It's, trying to, it's like trying to gossip about someone when they're standing right there in front of you. You're less likely to do it, right? We want to grow a consciousness that God knows us better than we know ourselves, that he knows our hearts. So pray. Pray things like the words of Psalm 139, which says, God knows my heart better than I know my own self. He knows our words before they are on our lips. He knows my thoughts. He knows when I sit and when I rise. And so the psalmist prays at the end of the psalm, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. See if there is any offensive way in me. Show me what is in my heart that maybe I don't even know yet, and then lead me towards the right path. And what a great thing to pray. Praying with those kinds of words in your mind should strip away the veil of secrecy and deceit that you might be trying to deceive God with and leaves less room for spiritual hypocrisy to hide. So can I encourage all of us, as I was going to say as a bit of a take-home, but you're all at home already, so as, as something to do today, read Psalm 139 sometime today and spend some time on your own praying with those words in mind. It's not a silver bullet against hypocrisy, but God willing, he will use those prayers to give us a consciousness of our own hearts, for starters, but also of God's constant and intimate knowledge of us and pray that he will lead you increasingly to be the kind of person who genuinely does seek to live out your trust in Jesus and to grow in that faith. Let's pray that he will do that in all of us. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, it is a confronting scene that we see with Ananias and Sapphira in this passage. And we do pray that as we hear this with the ears of faith and with soft hearts, you will help each one of us to heed this warning so that we do open our hearts to you, knowing that nothing in our hearts is hidden from you anyway, that we will ask you to search our hearts. Lord, search us and know us. Help us to see where there is any deceit or hypocrisy in us and lead us into the way of righteousness. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.